Father, thank you for Corey, for Kristen, their family. Thank you that they're here today, that we have the chance to offer them music and teaching. They get to receive because you are the giver. You love giving. You love forgiving. You love raising up those who have fallen. You love giving strength to those who are weak. Lord, you love refueling those who are out of energy. You have a word of hope always to the despairing, to the exasperated mom, to the dad who became angry this week, to the teenager who doesn't know where they fit in. Lord, to those whose bills are more than money coming in. And to all of us, Lord, our hearts, to those whose hearts realize our contentment, our lack of desire to grow and our contentment with sin. We regret that. We confess that. We want to be made new by the power of the word. We thank you for what's already happened in this place today. Extraordinary worship. Thank for these students heading to the inner city. God, we pray that the eternal trajectory of young people and their families in the inner city would be changed. Do far more than we can ask or imagine. For your glory, for your pleasure, and for our joy when we watch you do things that we were not even passionate enough to ask for. God, I give you my sin. The only hope that I have for being heard in heaven and effective on earth is the blood of Christ the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. So with him and for him and by him and through him, I, with the band and all who serve and hold babies and lead small groups and set out chairs, we give you our loaf, our bread, and ask that you would feed thousands, hundreds of thousands and millions across the globe, especially in the Middle East, especially among the dear ones, or part of the Islamic world, oh God, might they find the Savior who's standing right in front of them. Open their eyes, open all blind eyes and all religions, the up and out, the down and out, open eyes today to see Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Without question, the television audience of America is greatly Uh, drawn to those TV shows now that involve the renovation of homes that are somewhat in a mess. Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna, uh, Property Brothers, uh, and uh, Love It or List It, which is my favorite, not. Um, Audiences live for these shows because they love to see something that was in disrepair, and they love to see the after. In fact, The after means something to them because of the decrepit condition of the before. It wouldn't mean so much if you didn't see the before. I was speaking in Miami uh, a good many years ago now, and a young man came to me. He was vibrant, was handsome and polite, and he showed me a picture, and he said, this is me, and I didn't recognize him. He said, this is me, B.C. This is me before Christ. 
and drugs and arrogance and all sorts of wild living had dominated his life. And it was so wonderful to see the after, the AC after Christ, only because I saw the severe condition of the before Christ. So what I want to do today is to look back and rejoin our study in Ephesians to look at the before and after picture of a human being before they meet Christ and after they meet Christ. And my aim today is to show you how much God loves you. I don't want to tell you he loves you and then you simply rely on on, on how it sounded, maybe, maybe it came out with some sort of charismatic flair, and then all you have the rest of the week is how it sounded or how it felt. I want to show you how much God loves you based on your condition that you were in when he met you. Because when your conscience, when you stand alone with a condemning conscience that brings up the past, when you stand face to face with the accuser who tells you of all the weaknesses in your life, reminding me even of my weaknesses this morning. You need to remember how much God loves you. If we knew and dwelt on how much God loves us, everything in life would be different for us. Our hope would be higher, peace would be deeper, and joy would walk with us like a best friend causing us to sing with singing birds and to rejoice in falling rain as if it were music if we realize how much God loves us. Now, the way that I want to go about showing you that God loves you is going to seem radical, and to some of you it's going to seem counterintuitive because I want to show you how much He loves you by first showing you how unlovable you are and I am. If you really want to see how beautiful a diamond is, then you place that diamond on a black cloth. And it is the darkness of the cloth that accentuates the brilliance of the diamond. It's what Paul does here in Ephesians chapter 2. It is the strategy that he dares to show us how unlovable we are so that we will appreciate how much we are loved by God. When a doctor is convinced of his cure it does not frighten him to tell you how sick you are. So God looks at you and says, you're very, very sick. It doesn't frighten him to say that because he knows that his love is the cure for all of your ills. Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, your past, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of, of wrath. When we were in Ephesians 1, and I don't know if you were, remember, but we sort of stayed there eight weeks and the reason we stayed there so long, you remember the theme of Ephesians 1, God has done it all, chose you, predestined you, planned this purpose for the world. And you sort of, some of you might have gotten a little irritated. Why does he get all the credit? Well, that answer comes when you read Ephesians 2, because we couldn't do anything about our situation. 
So Ephesians 1, God gets all the credit because we were unable to reverse our situation. If you read the first three verses of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, it's basically taking the first three chapters of the book of Romans and condensing them to three verses to show the plight of humanity. And it starts with, we were dead in transgressions and sins. So when God looks down at this world, he sees dead men walking. Go to any urban area, see tall buildings, skyscrapers, sprawling universities, and what God sees is a massive graveyard of dead men walking. They walk to work dead. They go to the gym dead. They dance at weddings dead in the eyes of God. Their bodies are animated. Their brains are creative, but they have no spiritual life in them. It doesn't mean man is incapable of doing good things. Man does many good things because he is made in the image of God, and that remnant of the image of God compels him to do good things. Man does good things, but he does them while his soul is dead. And let me say that our spiritual death does not mean that we are all as bad as we could be. Total depravity does not mean we are as bad as we could be. It simply means that sin has affected every bit of our heart, mind, emotion, will. But we're not as bad as we could be. A corpse that is dead on the battlefield for 20 minutes looks much different than a corpse that's been on the battlefield dead for 20 days. So there are different levels of decay in the human condition, but all are on the battlefield dead. But God in His grace prevents society from being corrupt as it could be. That is a giant hallelujah. It could be a much worse situation. So what has produced this spiritual deadness? Paul tells us in verse 1, transgressions and sins. Transgressions is basically crossing the line, trespassing. God says, don't do this. You do it. Don't walk here. You walked there. It's disobeying the clear voice of God. Sin is the reason that we transgress. Sin would be that bent within us that misses, like an arrow that misses the target. Sin within us causes us to not desire the target, to not love the glory of God. And that's why we sin, but we commit sins because we are sinners. And the result of this is that we are dead. The power, look at this, the power of sin, what does sin do? Sin kills. How powerful is sin? It produces a massive graveyard, and the tombstone reads, they died because of sin. This week we celebrated with great vigor, reverence, the 75th anniversary of the Allied invasion of Normandy when those Allied forces, by God's grace, were used to stop Hitler and his German war machine, and Europe was saved, and all of the world was saved. And if you go to the cliffs of France there above Omaha Beach, you will find 9,386 headstones dedicated to American soldiers. 
and on every tombstone could be written, they died because of war. On the tombstone of the massive graveyards of America, they died because of sin. Sin kills. So even though man is physically alive, he's spiritually dead. He does not love God because he can't love God. Interesting thing about physical death is those who are physically dead are unconscious. There's an unawareness that they are dead. Likewise, a spiritually dead person is unaware that he is spiritually dead. That's why somebody who is spiritually dead will boast that they are ready for heaven. They do not know they are dead while they make their boast, I am ready, qualified, good enough for heaven. From school to sports to careers to thousands of blessings of family and health and financial prosperity, they receive these all every day with no desire to glorify God because they are spiritually dead. And that's why those who work in the Middle East, those who work in the inner city, our only hope for anything ever happening, for this sermon being accepted, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment because they do not believe in Me. Again, we've called you to prayer for the past three weeks. This would be week number four. I am begging you. I'm crying out. I do not, do not know why you would not respond with more fervency than ever. Our only hope moving across town is the work of the Holy Spirit falls on that part of the city. He's the only one who can make a sermon like this be heard and believed. But we trust that he will do it. If you want to know why you're so prone to depart from God, Paul says that in three ways in Ephesians 2. You follow the ways of the world and the ruler of the world. We'll find out Satan and you lived for the flesh. So those three influences in your life is what produced your death. The world, following the world, following Satan, and following your flesh. So Paul first mentions the first thing that persuaded us, the influence that persuaded us to depart from God was the ways of the world. You'll find that word world used in the New Testament 186 times. It is always used in reference to the ideology, anti-God ideology, anti-Christ ideology that leads the world to embrace Activities, behaviors, motives that are hostile to a holy God. The world system hates holiness and seeks to promote rejection. If you wanted to summarize the world system in its primarily, primarily its, its three primary ideologies, I would say that they are humanism, materialism, and hedonism. Humanism would be the belief that man is supreme, and nobody the boss of me, man is supreme. Materialism is the most important thing in life is to gain money and to acquire 
comfort and prestige rather than laying down my life for Christ. Hedonism simply says, I'm going to let my body enjoy whatever pleasure it wants, despite what person or what deity God is, is hurt. The world system is so strong that it, it, it sweeps you up and you're simply in its control. I remember in 1980, I was whitewater rafting in California down the Kern River and we were in a class four rapid and our boat flipped and it's the first time I'd ever been in whitewater where my, I was out of my boat, which is wild in a class four rapid. I could move my arms and but I was totally carried wherever that river wanted to go. I stopped when it spewed me out on a bank. This is the world that has teenagers and young adults and men and women in all facets of life. They think they're free and they think I'm doing, I'm waving my hands, I'm eating, I'm doing what I want to do. And yet they are like jellyfish in the ocean carried by our current that's more powerful than they are. They think they're doing what they want to do, but they look to the world of what to say, what to watch, what to wear. Totally owned by the world. I'm free. Nobody tells me what to do except the world tells me what to do. The second source of temptation comes from what Paul calls, we're going to see, the devil. He says, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. It doesn't really take much Bible knowledge to know who he's talking about and because of the usage of the word disobedient. A spirit working in the disobedient would be Satan. The book of Ephesians talks more about spiritually dark powers than any New Testament book. Because the reality, Dan just prayed for me prior to coming up here, and I appreciate his prayer. Father, we need your help. We know that Satan is already at work in this building. Appreciate his awareness of biblical truth. When, why does Paul call Satan the ruler of the kingdom of the air? I think it's simply because... Can you name a place in life where there is not air? Everywhere you go, every city, every village, every slum, every high-rise, every jail cell, every university, there's air. So everywhere there's air, Satan is at work. And it's interesting, he's at work energizing the disobedient. That's at work comes from a Greek word, energeo, from which we get our word energize. Satan is motivating, energizing you, me, whenever we disobey. The next time sin comes your way and you're looking at it saying, should I do it? Would you please look behind the sin and see Satan standing there energizing that opportunity. He's there, energizing, motivating you to rebel. 
Well, not only is the believer controlled by the world and demonic energy, the unbeliever, but the unbeliever is also controlled by his own sinful passions. Ephesians 2, 3, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. The language in this verse, in the Greek New Testament, is just packed, probably about four words that are just painting the picture of someone under the power of their flesh. It speaks of a mind that has already made a decision, I'm going to rebel against God, and then that mind gives license to the body to feed it with any desires it so pleases. So mind is rebelling, rebelling, body is out of control, is all of the, the picture behind verse 3. Oscar Wilde was a talented 19th century playwright, wrote great stories, plays, received many academic honors, but could not control his body, could not control himself, sexually ended up eventually in prison, and from prison he would write this memoir. I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease, I deliberately went to the depths in search for every new sensation. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me. I ceased to be lord over myself. I was no longer captain of my soul. I allowed pleasure to dominate me. I ended in horrible disgrace. So you look at Oscar Wilde and say, how did his life end? He tells us horrible disgrace. So how does the unbeliever's life end in terms of what we read next in chapter 3, it also ends very tragically. Ephesians 2, we were by nature deserving of God's wrath. Because we were callous toward God, because we were controlled by the flesh, energized by Satan, led by the world, the only response of a righteous God for this unholy attitude, this, this unholy reciprocation of what we have received, how we responded to God. His righteous response, based on his holy justice, was to sentence us with his wrath. Now, if you think... Paul's language is too strong. Say, well, Paul, he's just, Paul is just, Paul is an angry former Pharisee, now turned overzealous apostle. This is too much. If that's your opinion, I would say, I just want to go to church where they preach Jesus. That's what I just, just hear me, Jesus. Well, then let's turn to what Jesus has to say about the plight of the unbeliever. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So, I believe in the wrath of God because the most tender lips 
that have ever spoken on earth, Jesus Christ believes in the wrath of God for unbelievers. Paul believed in the wrath of God because the most tender lips that have ever taught truth believed in the wrath of God. And so Paul concludes we were by nature targets of God's wrath. Well, at this point in Ephesians 2, you might be thinking to yourself, well, this is hopeless. The state of the pre-Christian is absolutely hopeless. The wrath of God is about to fall on him, and he doesn't even seek shelter because he doesn't even know he's in danger. And it would be hopeless if it were not for the greatest four words in Scripture, the love of God. Let's continue. Ephesians 2, 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You know what I love about these verses? This is the turnaround in a championship game when the announcer said, it's all over, folks. Game's over. But something happened in the fourth quarter, the ninth inning, the fifth set, the back nine, the final two minutes, the last play, the love of God is what happened. We were dead in sin, but God made us alive. We were captured by the chains of the world, but God freed us from those chains. We were destined for his wrath, but God sent Jesus to drink the cup so that we might drink grace. If I had to choose one word to describe this section of Ephesians 2, I would just like all over the top of it write the word hope. Immeasurable, unstoppable hope. Hope that's available for, that can change any life, anywhere, anytime. Hope that's possible because God's love is great and his mercy is rich. I know there's somebody guilty, feeling so much condemnation here today. Read these verses and live. This is why there's hope, because God's love is great and his mercy is rich. The word rich is used six times in the book of Ephesians, always in reference to God's mercy and his grace and his glory. God is rich in mercy, hallelujah, brokenhearted sinner. God is rich in mercy. He is rich in mercy. No matter what you bring, he has more mercy than you have sin. The mercy of God is his sympathetic pity to save those who cannot save themselves. What is God's attitude to the brokenhearted sinner? To douse them with rich mercy. God loves you. God loves forgiving you. God loves you. God loves forgiving you. You can do a lot of things in life, but you cannot stop God from loving you. 
As one writer said long ago, God shows love to the loveless that they might lovely be. And I love this because God's the one who takes all the initiative. This is why we love the book of Ephesians going from chapter 1. God taking the initiative in chapter 1. Why? We couldn't do anything in our plight in chapter 2. God takes the initiative. Verse 5. God made us alive with Christ when we were dead. I, you know, we prayed with the students just a moment ago and one reason I chose to get back in Ephesians on this week is I was talking to some student leaders this week that were in the office getting ready for Come Closer's inner city mission work next week or this week. And I said, what? So what and I forgot. I said, what's your, what's your, what's your theme this week is it for Come Closer? Is staying alive? They said, they said no, that, that's, a, that's a film. It's a film. It's, it's, uh, but I forgot it again. It's what? Fully alive. Fully alive. Okay. But I still think hand motions go. Okay. So it's. <laughs> Fully alive at the initiative of God. When we were dead in sins, God made us fully alive. You know, a dead person cannot even will themselves to breathe. And that's why God, when he saw our lifeless souls bent down from heaven's throne and breathed new life into our bodies. He saved you when you could not save yourself. Saved, just say it, saved, saved, saved. What a beautiful word. By grace you have been saved, rescued from the judgment of God. Saved from the wrath of God. We rejected God, we rebelled against God, we died. And God saved us from eternal judgment. Now one thing I want you to notice in these verses is that God does all the saving. It's, it's the initiative of God, but please don't misunderstand. God does not will us to life. He can't do that. He doesn't have the power to do that. God wills us to life only through Christ. God is holy. He cannot will an unbeliever to life. God wills somebody to Christ. Be, uh, God wills somebody to life only because of their union with Christ. Christ is through, all of the work of Christ is what brings about God's decision to make us alive. Look, look how many times in Ephesians 2 verse 5. God made us alive with Christ. He raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ. So you may not be feeling good about yourself today and you've just blown it again this week. Last week, this, your whole life, you're trying to figure out what can I do? Nothing. Except join yourself to Christ. It's with Christ. This is the central doctrine of the whole New Testament. We're crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, ascended with Christ, reigning with Christ. Everything is because of being with Christ. He is the one who does it. All you got to do is make sure you're with him. Amen. Everything you want and need spiritually will be given because of your union with Christ. Please hear this. Christianity is not about you becoming a nicer person. Though God will work on your nice skills. 
It's not about you incorporating new religious and more religious ceremonies. Those spiritual disciplines will help you see the greatness of God. Christianity is about you being united with Jesus Christ through the simple act of faith. I believe, I trust Jesus. That's why this passage overflows with hope. Everything you cannot do for yourself, Christ has done for you. And so that's why Paul says, for it's by grace you've been saved through what? Faith. Not works. Not human effort. It's grace, friend. Grace, grace, grace. Grace. Undeserved love. Love that you can never earn. Love that is freely Given, therefore freely receive it. All because of God's grace. The most important thing you can ever learn, especially when you have deeply failed God, is to just come back and let Him love you and forgive you by His grace. That's all you can do. And just believe the gospel. I love how John MacArthur says for the, God's message to the brokenhearted sinner. I know what you are. And what you've done. But because of my great love for you, your penalty has been paid. My law's judgment against you has been satisfied through the work of my son on your behalf. For his sake, I offer you forgiveness to come to me. You need only come to him. There are many people at this very moment that look at their life and say, God should not love me. You may have said that recently. And you are absolutely right. In fact, if God's only attributes were justice and holiness, He would not extend forgiveness to you, only wrath. But the Bible says he is, His love is great and His mercy is rich. And He delights to show mercy to all those who don't deserve it. So to the teenager who has morally, morally failed in their dating life, to the husband and wife who have failed maritally, to the parents who failed their children and to the children who failed their parents, to the pastor who has failed his church, and to the missionary who has failed, failed his assignment, God says, bring all your sins to me and exchange them for grace and mercy. And for those who come to Christ now, they will live beside him forever. Ephesians 2, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I love that word seated. It's in the aorist tense in Greek. Does that not blow your mind? Aorist tense is always used to talk about a past event, like it's already happened. Paul is saying, your seat next to Jesus is so certain in the future, he talks about it like a past event. Nothing's going to change this, believer. You are seated with Christ. I know you still have this body with all of its cracks and flaws, and which causes all sorts of ugly stuff to ooze out. 
And I rejoice that one day the glory of God is going to feel, you are going to have a new body seated next to Jesus Christ and his glory is going to fill all of those nooks and crannies. So there is nothing but Jesus completely in you. That's coming. But until then, you need to understand, next to Jesus right now, today, this hour, this minute, is a seat with your name on it, believer. And because your soul has been made alive, every time you pray, you are with him. And he says, I see you, because he sees everything, and your soul to him is as good as your body. And your soul is right there on that seat. He says, I see you, Richard, praying, and I hear you, Richard, crying out right next to him, seated. And let me conclude now this message with one of the greatest purpose statements in all the Bible. Everybody on staff is always learning how to teach the Bible just a little bit better from Dan, who is just by far the Best person I've ever heard to handle scripture. I mean, apart from the big boys. But I mean, for double A ball, he's the best. <laughs> he, I learned so, I have already learned so much, but he's always saying this, look for, it's called a purpose clause. Look for the clauses in scripture that say why something just happened. In the Greek, it's always the word henna. In the English, it's translated often in order that. So that. I don't know of a greater henna clause, a greater, greater purpose clause. Certainly is my favorite greater, greatest in order that in all of Scripture. Why has God done all of this in Christ? Here we go. In order that. Why? That in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So from the beginning of time, God has been unbelievably immeasurably active. Active in creation. Active in history. Active in providence. Active in Christ. And you say, what is, what is God doing in 6,000 years of history. And it's not always easy to know. You can't always look at creation and know exactly what's going on when, when nature is stormy and wrathful and people are hurting you. What are you doing? And you, you can't always look at history when men and women treat each other cruelly around the world and, God, what are you doing? It's not always easy to read what he's doing and when you look at God's acts of providence in Scripture of making this happen here, and you can't always understand what are you doing. You can't read what he's doing. But when you look at Jesus Christ, any elementary school can, child can read it. Perfectly legible. He has sent Christ in order that in the coming ages he might show us the riches of his Grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
your first day in heaven. God has brought, will bring you in there to show you kindness you've never experienced. Your second day in heaven, your tenth year in heaven, he will show you more kindness. Your hundredth year in heaven, he will show you more kindness. And then what does he have in store for you on year 10,000 to show you new kindness that you've never seen in your life? God has saved you through Jesus Christ that he might be kind to you forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father, boy, do I look at the B.C. Richard picture, and you perfectly described me, and you still well describe all the nooks and crannies of my life that still desire to misbehave and rebel. But I rejoice that your love is great and your mercy is rich and you have made me alive and you have made these, my brothers and sisters, alive with Christ. Through simple faith in the life that he lived without sin, the death that he died for all sin, in his resurrection, over the grave, in his ascension to his throne in heaven. So God, today, I, along with others here, cry out, I unite myself to Christ. I unite myself to his death. I unite myself to his perfect life. I unite myself to his agonizing suffering in which he died the death of all deaths. He died the death of sin. And my sin and my guilt has been abolished when he died. And I unite myself to that truth. I unite myself to his resurrection so that when I die, I will be resurrected. And now I unite myself to his ascension so that I can sit on a throne next to him and talk to him and receive strength from him and new holiness from him and new power to finish my race well from him. And God, I pray today for the unbeliever, dead and helpless. I pray for the helpless, hopeless, dead, world-bound, sin-bound, demon-energized unbeliever that today they would say, I believe Christ. Father, please cause them today, even during the song, to come to the front of this church and to profess their faith in Jesus Christ. Would you allow me, would you allow others to see someone today go from B.C. to A.C. In Christ I pray. Amen.